Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 22nd show of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that you might find quite unexpected. My guest and I will discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. My guest today shares his biggest leadership lesson, that is, learning to lead himself after an epiphany that while he had lots of accomplishments, he was not leading a centered life. Trained as a civil engineer, starting out as a transmission line engineer, he took his career in two directions. On one hand, leadership coach. On the other, real estate educator by helping investors learn to own and operate apartments. He makes real estate investing look easy and helps ordinary people invest in multifamily real estate and create generational wealth. I am super excited for you to hear from the founder and chief inspiration officer of Dream Catchers, a boutique coaching firm, and the Myers Development Group, Jerome Myers. Jerome, welcome to Our Voices. Molly, what an amazing introduction. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so good to be with you today. It is uh, really my honor, and I'm really, really excited for listeners to get a glimpse of you, you know, and my kudos for building your expertise in coaching as well as this multifamily real estate and serving people in ways that are impactful and meaningful to you. Um, so I'm really keen for listeners to get a sense of your journey and the many twists and terms uh, that have contributed to who you are today. <laughs> Boy, it's been a wild ride. I don't know if they're ready, but hopefully they buckle up and lock in for what I hope will be a captivating discussion. It is going to be your discussion and uh, you can start uh, wherever you'd like to start. Oh, man. So I'm saving one of the best stories till the end. So I'll have to skip over that and then come back. And so, as you mentioned, I'm formally trained as an engineer. And I realized in my sophomore year that I didn't actually want to be an engineer. So me and my buddy Duran are sitting on the stoop and uh, doing our normal conversation about Black Enterprise articles, Worth Magazine. And this particular conversation was centered around somebody who was making money through rental real estate. And we were like, man, that'd be pretty cool. And then we started doing a little bit of math. I was paying $3.95. I had two roommates doing the same thing downstairs. His apartment had the same thing happening. And when we multiplied it across the complex, we realized that the owner was making about $700,000 a year, but we never saw him or talked to him. So he had third-party property management in place, and they had maintenance team. And so he was just there collecting a check. And we are like, we don't need 700,000. What if we could just make 70,000? But Molly, you know, I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. So the people with multi-million dollar real estate portfolios were not coming to hang out at the barbecue. 
In fact, I had no idea how I was going to get in touch with anybody who had done what I wanted to do. So I decided that I needed to finish getting my degree and then go out into the workforce. And so that's what I did. And you mentioned I, I started out in the power industry as a line engineer. And I went through that company for a while. I had the ambition of leading a business unit as an executive. And then 2009 happened, and my mentor and sponsor was let go. He was a senior vice president, and they just eliminated or collapsed that level of the organization. And it was then that I realized, man, there is a lot of risk in being in somebody else's organization. Now, I was in a role that I didn't really enjoy. I was working on the weekends, and I had night work. It was kind of a swing shift situation. And I did everything I could to get out of that role, but I was unsuccessful. And then finally, somebody reached down and plucked me out of what I consider to be that hell and moved me to a new role. And they said, hey, Jerome, if you don't get a promotion in the next six or seven months into something else, then you're going to get a pay cut as well as get your bonus cut back because we put you in this position and it was a step backwards. It wasn't actually you progressing. So I left and I went into consulting and from that consulting gig, I went to another one, which was with a much larger company, spent some time doing work internationally. And then I landed in my final role in corporate America. And we'll come back to that later in this conversation, if you don't mind, Molly. Well, this is good. And I, what I want to do is I kind of um, am wondering about the son of the soldier and the stay at home mom where you grew up, what it was like, siblings. So take us back to your earliest, earliest childhood memory. My earliest childhood memory is probably sitting in my dad's lap with no shirt on, just my diaper, eating spaghetti. And that was my favorite meal to eat. And for him to be feeding me on that day was pretty cool. And so my mom was finishing up her associate's degree while she was pregnant. And in fact, I was born in March and she still had a couple of months to go to finish her degree. So my dad took six months off from his role as a, a staff sergeant, or maybe he was a, uh, he was an E8, but I don't exactly remember which title, first sergeant. He was a first sergeant and a jump master. So he took that time off and stayed home with me while my mom finished up her degree. And then as I was growing, he finally finished up his bachelor's degree at night. And I still remember, it's not the earliest memory, but because I went there to sitting in his lap, I still remember that he graduated from college in about the same like month or so where I graduated from high school. And so one of the pictures that I look at pretty regularly is us both being in our cap and gown because that, that was a huge accomplishment for him. He I think he was probably the first person in our lineage to actually graduate from college, even though he did it when he was in his late thirties. Wow. So, uh, share, um, you know, what, what it was like as a kid, did you uh, walk to school, play with a lot of folks? Like what was, what was your upbringing like? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Right. So my mom stayed at home with me. And so the big part of that was because I was involved in so many activities. And so, I was running from football to baseball to basketball to taekwondo to my Saturday 
enrichment sessions at the Math and Science Center at the local university. I was involved in whatever club I could get in at school. And, you know, I cultivated this identity as somebody who was involved in everything and was able to talk and interact with anybody. And my school was one of the unique ones in the county. Typically, you know, the school is impoverished or they're pretty well-to-do. And we had a mixture of people who lived in trailer parks to the folks who lived in golf course communities. And because I was in advanced courses, specifically in high school, I spent the majority of the time with the folks who were better off because those happened to be the people who were in those advanced courses. Now, as a young kid, what I saw most frequently in my neighborhood was people who were playing some type of sport, whether it was football in the street, basketball, whatever it was, that's how we spent our time, and then eventually video games. But, yeah, I mean, there there was a cluster of us. There was probably you know, five to 10 folks that we saw on a daily basis and you knew where we were based on where the bikes were. Crazy. Where did you grow up? Bayville, North Carolina. Hmm. And is that an environment, uh, demographics culturally very mixed? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the largest military installations in the country is a border or adjacent to Fayetteville, Fort Bragg. And so, the diversity of the military heavily impacts the diversity in the community in and around Fayetteville or, you know, within Cumberland County. And so, yeah, I mean, it, the community was very, very diverse, both in income as well as race. And do you recall any, you know, kids I love because they just see the kid, but do you recall observing bias of people or ever experience it yourself as a youth? Yeah, so I'm one of the people who probably has been protected or insulated. Um, So my experience in particular is one where people from other communities have reached out their hand to help me get into positions that I had no idea existed. Uh, And that part in some ways saddens me because I've always wanted to believe that the folks who look like me wanted me to excel and grow the most, but I hadn't really ever found that to be the case. I've, I still remember my third grade teacher, Mr. Blackwell, insisting that I get put into the academically gifted program where the year before or two years before the teachers that I had didn't think that I was exceptional in any real way and didn't recommend me to go do Um, the testing to get there. But, you know, Mr. Blackwell, he was, you know, a white guy, probably in his mid to late 40s at the time, saw something special in me and made that investment. And it changed my trajectory, right? Because once you're identified as a smart kid, then new resources get open up to you and you get ushered into this track and then you move through middle and high school. And as long as you're performing at a reasonably high level, you you get the opportunity to continue to move around in those environments and get access to those opportunities. So for me, I, I never really saw that. And I think my parents intentionally didn't talk to me about that. And it was really funny because I didn't think that my parents encountered that outside of my mom talking about, 
what happened when the schools integrated when she was growing up. And she grew up in a rural part of North Carolina. And my dad was speaking at a black history program because he was he is the first African-American a city council person or town council person in the place that he lives. And he was also the first black postmaster at the post office that he runs there. And so he was speaking and he explained how he encountered racism when he first moved into the town that they live in today. And I was taken aback because at no point in our home was racism a topic of conversation, at least not in front of me. And I think me not carrying that around has maybe just made me, I'll call it ignorant to the things happening. Because as I showed up, I I didn't feel like I was disqualified for my race or that I was judged on anything other than my character and my capacity or capability. I love that. And, you know, we don't know, but I, I could see parents doing a great job to let you be you. Um, I am, I appreciate you bringing up that Mr. Blackwell says you can have this one guardian angel, right? And it just completely, as you said, puts you on a different trajectory. When you think about perhaps some of the teachers who, you know, maybe it's just a bit disappointed that they didn't advocate uh, for, you know, someone who might be more similar to them. How has it changed how you, um, think about those that you mentor um, or how you see potential in people, whether yeah. they're young or old. Yeah. So if I go back to the stoop where Duran and I are sitting, like we've created a community that would welcome little Jerome and little Duran into it. Right. I think a lot of the folks who teach individuals how to invest in multifamily properties aren't inclusive. In fact, if you look at their speaker list when they have a conference or if you look at the guests who are on their podcast, you won't see much diversity. What you will see, and it's really concentrated with anything that is associated with wealth creation, is white men between the ages of 40 and 55 who have successfully done this or that. And now they're doing everything to make it look like those are the only people who can have success doing the thing. And so this past weekend, we put together an extremely diverse lineup of speakers. In fact, we touted it as the most diverse multifamily investing conference that you can come to in the country or even the world. And we spent 30 hours going through content so that people have no excuse when it comes to any other thing that we see people being biased on, on how or why they can't do it. And that's intentional because I still remember when I was a junior level engineer and seeing Craig running a business unit and saying, Hey, Craig, you make me believe that it's possible for me to do it because you're the only guy that looks like me out of the 88 executives that we have at this 17,000 employee company. And so because you're there, it makes me feel like I can be there too. And he said, Jerome, don't worry about race. Worry about being the best engineer you can, then the best supervisor, then the best manager, then the best director. And if you do those things, then you'll become an executive. And I mean, that's just been a continuous message that I've gotten is like, 
remove race from the conversation and do all that you can. Because here's the thing. I can't change the color of my skin. I guess I could. I guess I could bleach it, but I'm not going to change the color of my skin. I'm not going to change the thickness of my lips or the broadness of my nose. I'm not going to change the coil of my hair. All of those things are there. I'm grateful for the way that I turned out. And I'm not going to change those things in order for somebody to accept me. Now, if they can't accept me because of that, then I'll go find a place that can. I don't feel like I have to force my way into somebody's world if they don't want me there because of my appearance. And that's kind of where I draw the line. And I encourage people to spend time on the things that they can change or control. I love it. I literally, I was just interviewed the young woman doing a thesis and I said something similar about that, which is, you know, you find the tribe that works for you and you don't have to leave, you know, being mad or, you know, frustrated to say, Hey, it's not a fit for you. Right. You wish them well, but you go find a place where you can bloom. You know, Jerome, what words might you have when, when, um, people encountered, I call it like on like, whether it's Asian supporting Asian, black supporting black, when, when perhaps people aren't as supportive of their own, what would you suggest for people to think about, you know, whether you could be helping someone or, or you would love to be helped by someone else? I'm just curious. Yeah. Like on like, I, I, I call it people being more racist with people in their community than those who are not. I I challenge it, Molly. It bothers me, right? Because when you look at the folks who control the majority of the wealth, they create opportunities for each other. They do business within the community before they take the dollar out of the community. So why would you not mimic the habits or the behaviors that they have? And it it may sound silly, but the thought that the white man's ice is colder is just silly. It's silly. And so once we overcome or understand that, then I think we can move to the place of really understanding the value that we have. And so I think the majority of that really comes from some form of self-hate. I don't enjoy who I am. I don't enjoy my experience. And when I see that reflected back to me, I want to do whatever I can to suppress it because it reminds me of all the things that I'm not. And I, I just want to tell you that you're wonderfully made and that all of the things that you are not are okay. That's okay. Yeah. 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 You are wonderfully made. I love it. I love it. I, um, you have such a great soul. Jerome, you're um, you're very bright light, and I I sense a the purity, and I think you know when you kind of haven't had some layered baggage on, you can be free. And you mentioned maybe ignorance. I might call it a joyful naivete that is very freeing because you maybe maybe don't know any better, if you will, right? Or you do know better, and uh, you can be free. Um, any siblings? What the, what, how did you grow up relative in terms of other family? Yeah, only child. Only child. And did you ever ask your parents about uh, why they didn't have another? 
Well, my mom had a miscarriage when I was, I don't know, seven or eight. The baby was stillborn, and mm-hmm. it was a pretty tra- traumatic experience for her. And, yeah, I mean, that was she wasn't willing to go back through that or try that again because of how bad she felt. Oh, it's, that's very, very tough. My heart's out for her on that. Um, what do they think about uh, about you now? I'm I, I'm wondering when you when you see how often do you get to see them? Yeah, we probably see each other once a month, once every other month, and they just kind of look at me. So you know, I am a corporate America dropout, as you mentioned in the bio, right? I, I do two things: I buy apartments and I help people with growing their businesses through a number of different tools and techniques that we use. And so they just kind of look at me because my mom wanted nothing more than to have a steady income. And so my dad always had these dreams of being an entrepreneur and he was trying to figure out ways to create income outside of his job. And that never excited her. In fact, she wanted him to stop doing it. He had a job and that was good enough for her. And as a public servant, first as a soldier and then working in a postal system, you know, that income could be capped in some ways. I still remember when I realized that I was making more in my engineering and project management career than he had made. And it made me sad in some regards because I was still in my 20s. But in other regards, it was like, well, this is a sacrifice and investment that they made in order for me to be able to create this level of income and hopefully at some point wealth. And so I I jumped off of the traditional path and I think most days they're proud. Uh, They like the grandkids more than they like me these days, but you know, at least I I get to look at them, interact with them, which I think is probably more rewarding for me. I, I didn't know my grandfathers, either one of them. And so for me, it's super important that my daughters have a relationship with my dad because I feel like I missed out on the whole grandpa thing. I I had my dad, which I wouldn't trade for anything, but I do know some folks who are super close to their grandfathers and, you know, I I just missed that whole thing. Yeah. So uh, let's go back to the, uh, the, the engineering corporate, corporate dropout. I want to come back to the daughters, of course. Um, So, you know, this idea of moving out on your terms, was that a struggle for you? Like, am I doing the right thing? Should I do it? Or were you like, no, I know that this is fundamentally wrong for Jerome and I'm out of here. I knew that it was fundamentally wrong for me. And at the risk of spoiling later segments of the show, I'll I'll tell this story. And so I was employee number two in that division. I started on January 13th, met the customer. They gave us our first set of assignments. And by the end of September of that year, I had 175 people on my team. By the end of the year, we did $20 million in revenue. We had 30% profit margins. And I get a phone call on 455 on December 24th. And it goes something like this. Hey, Jerome, we've decided that we're going to lay them off. What do you mean we're going to lay them off? Well, I know you and I have been going back and forth on this, and I've decided that the right thing to do is go ahead and cut about 50% of the team. Why would we do that? We're going to need these folks as we go forward. Jerome, I, I'm calling to inform you that this is a decision. 
I'm, I'm not here to negotiate with you. This is a decision that I've made. And I just wanted to let you know. Well, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Jerome, I, I'm not here to negotiate with you. I'm getting ready to go spend the rest of the year with my family. I'll talk to you next year. But wait. And then there was the boop, 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 that if you have an iPhone, you know that that means that the call ended. And so I looked at it and I was like, well, did the call drop? And I realized that he hung up on me. And I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. And I did everything that I could to try to figure out how to make that as objective as possible. I had to figure out how we were going to let go of half of the folks who some decided that they weren't going to move with their spouse when they went to the new duty station or they turned down promotions to go do other things or they decided that the plan that they were on wasn't the right thing so they wanted to come and stay and hang out with us. And it crushed me. And it felt like my stomach got turned inside out and just kind of cut open and everything spilled out because I was a fearless leader who was taking us on this amazing journey, doing things that we didn't think was possible. And it was funny because our client didn't actually think we could get done what they asked us to do. And so I had to go in and share that news with folks on the other side of New Year's. Hey, you got to figure out another way to feed your family. And for me, that was a traumatic experience. And I got through it by saying they made me do it. But then I said, I'm never going to do this again. And I made that promise, that commitment to myself. And then the following year, a couple of days before Thanksgiving, I'm standing up in front of the group and I'm saying, hey, I don't want you to spend all your money on Black Friday. I have no idea what's going to happen between now and the end of the year. And when I said that, I realized that I was part of the problem. I realized that I had a choice. I had agency. I could do something about this. I didn't have to do what I was told to do. I was making an active choice to participate in that. And I, I didn't want to be at the whim of somebody else anymore. I was in this space and in this place where I was running a team day to day. I talked to my supervisor once every other week and I saw him once a quarter because he didn't live in the state. And that made me feel like I was actually in control, but I wasn't because when he made a decision, I had to implement or execute. I had a, had a real problem with that Molly. And so I, I dropped out. Wow. That's heavy duty to, really be told without really understanding the why that you got to lose half the team. And uh, I can only imagine the feeling of, you know, sleepless, um, not eating, and uh, just wanting to be sick. How, um, knowing what you know now and remembering what you said to the team then, you know, what did you say and what, how might you say it differently with the wisdom you have now? Um, you know, what did I say then? I let you down. I 
wish there was something else that I could do. I wish we had another option. It was a really emotional situation for me. How would I say it today? I wouldn't be in that position to have to say it today. Um, but if, if, I, if I was somebody who had decided that I was going to be part of the corporate structure and I was going to be someone who was told who was going to be a part of the team, I would spend time talking very specifically about folks' performance and the perception of their ability to contribute to the team. And I would be very clear about why we were letting them go if we were letting them go instead of what most HR professionals would tell you to do, which is say as little as possible because they're trying to avoid a lawsuit for discrimination or some other headache that comes with actually communicating with folks why they were impacted in this way. I, I just believe that's one of the coldest things you can do is tell somebody that they're fired and they have no idea why. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, my, Marshall Goldsmith, amazing coach is a dear friend and mentor. And he, you know, he just say, you know, the decision maker is the decision maker. And it's, you know, as you mentioned, you know, here you are thinking you're in control and, and, and you kind of got the message that you weren't. And uh, I think, I think folks oftentimes in maybe a lesser scale, maybe it's not being fired, but decisions that don't seem to make sense that the team really can't do anything about. And a way to preserve the dignity could be, hey, I've got some news. It's not what I want to share. Um, you know, I'm here by choice. Um, so I am part of this. I, I have to admit, I don't know what I could have done. I'm going to be thinking about, is there any way I could have somehow um, run some interference? But the news is this. I don't have a good reason why. It's something that has to be done. And it, there was nothing you could have done. You did everything that uh, I could have asked and more. I am grateful for what you've done. I, I want to know that I support you in every way I can and anything I can do in this difficult path forward, I will do it. Um, I'm not proud of what I'm saying to you in these actions, but this is um, what I um, am executing on behalf of the company. It's a lesson for me. I want it to be a lesson for you. And uh, please, please, please don't make this a personal thing. It's not, it's not something you could have controlled or done anything about. And you know, that part's really interesting, Molly, because it's just like when parents get divorced, right? The kid always wonders what they did. And if you tell them that they did nothing, then they begin to question whether or not you're being honest with them. And that for me, is something that I realized when I was going through what I can, this traumatic experience as I see it. The, there were people who should have been fired prior to this reduction in force event. They were not performing well. So there was some fat. 
And as a leader, it was my fault because I didn't identify it and take care of it beforehand. Because maybe if I had done that, then less people would have been impacted. And so when you get some of the good going out with the bad, I think we we set those folks up who are working working with us for this false premise that they did all that they could or they did everything right. And I just don't believe that that's actually true. So I, I, I appreciate your, your presentation because there are situations where people did everything they could and there, there was nothing that they could have done to change the decision. But I think a lot of us leaders allow people to hang out who are not adding to the culture. And then when it becomes time to make some tough decisions, we're lumping in people who are actually adding tremendous value to the organization with folks who aren't doing that much and we're confusing them. And I think that's what probably makes it harder for them to swallow. Oh, I love what you shared there. When in fact there were things that could be done. And I affectionately call this, you know, we're all part of the problem and all part of the solution. I think that is awesome. And owning that and having that be a lesson is key. And to your point, you know, if there were things that people could do, you can't say you couldn't have done anything about it. I think in some situations, um, and I have been there where it is like, wow, they did everything we asked them to do. And for forces beyond anyone that, you know, we've changed the game and sometimes the game changes, right? And that's, that's really tough. I think that's a really, really great lesson for people because often, and when I say performance issues, people aren't bad people. We may have them in the wrong jobs. Maybe they're actually not doing their best and that's a different thing, but you know, for, for leaders, and for, for teammates, frankly, I don't make this just a leadership thing. You know, we should be clear on what we're expecting from each other in terms of effort, in terms of output. And this is where it's not personal saying, hey, you know, this is what the organization needs us to do. And when we're doing it, that's great. And if we're not doing it, let's be open about it. And what's going on? What can we do to help? What needs to happen? And if it's not a fit, you know, we can still love people, but it's not, it's not good for them. We're torturing them by having them in jobs that aren't the right thing for them. And we're holding the system back. So I think that's a great thing for people to realize. And I, I know that that's hard for people, especially for people you care about and to be objective. But the I think the leader's you know, privilege is being able to say, look at this is, um, it's not a fit. It's not a fit. And it's my job to make sure that um, we make a decision that really serves the the organization and, and what we can do collectively. And also in the end, that'll be what's right for the individuals. Yes. Yes. I, the one lesson, the one caveat to laying folks off is this concept of if we don't get some people off the boat, the whole boat will sink. And I had a really hard time swallowing that pill when it was explained to me initially, but Today, I can acknowledge that there's truth there. You have to be willing to amputate the leg if it will allow you to continue to live, even if you will have lost a piece or a part of your body. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a tough uh, metaphor, but it's um, an apt one. Uh, Jerome, switch gears, this real estate, um, you know, getting into it. And, and I'm just curious if you think about your relationship with money and um, if you never, if, you, if there were times where you felt like you didn't have enough of it. And I, I am just curious how you describe your relationship with money. It's a loving one. <laughs> we love each other. We we spend time together. We I use the money as a, a tool to amplify the things that I find important. And so if I want to give to a worthy cause, I can do that to help them further their mission. If I want to use it to buy an experience, maybe a trip, or if I want to purchase a vehicle so that we can enjoy the ride in the vehicle or I want to sign the kid up for uh, some type of extracurricular activity. Well, it's going to cost money. Here's the thing. Money's like air in my world. You need it. It's a necessary part of the situation. And as long as you have enough to do the things you want to do, it doesn't matter. It's kind of there, but you don't know it. You can't see it. You can't really feel it. But the moment that you don't have enough, is the moment where you realize how important it is. And I still remember coming out of my divorce and rent resenting my ability to earn money because I've been pretty successful at creating wealth and bringing money into my sphere of influence. And I resented it. And I said, I'm never doing anything else for money. I am here to be somebody who serves other people and serves them at a really high level. And if I can do that, then I'll be okay. And then I realized that if I don't have money, I can't actually serve people. And if I'm serving people at a really high level, then they should be really excited to transact with me because I'm doing something that's improving their life in a meaningful and hopefully measurable way. And so my relationship with money has gone full circle and I resented it because I felt like I was a wallet. I felt like I was just there to pay for stuff and that did not make me feel good. And so I wanted to be there because people enjoyed my company or some of the other things that are, I guess, less masculine or less macho. Mm -hmm. Right. I think a lot of guys believe, Hey, I'm solely here to provide and protect. And if I do those two things, then I'm, knocking out the park, but I wanted more connection. I wanted more involvement. And I think I've just gotten really soft in being a two girl dad, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the relational family side of things and, um, you know, getting married and getting divorced. Just talk us through that part of your life. Yeah, I married my, I haven't ever talked about this recorded, so here first. So I married my college sweetheart. Uh, we met in a bridge program in between our senior year in high school and our freshman year in college, and she helped me become the person I became. I graduated summa cum laude. She graduated with a perfect, uh, she graduated with a perfect GPA and with an engineering degree. And we ended up getting married after graduating and we had two beautiful daughters and about 
maybe five years in, we started realizing there something wasn't right. And we started, we did multiple types of counseling and we just never came to a place where we felt like we were partners. And then we decided that we didn't want the same things out of life. She wanted a very minimalist life. And we were in this 6,000 square foot house and I had an exotic car and it was like, I don't, she was kind of ashamed when her family came to visit and it was just like, this isn't working for either one of us. And so we decided to do something different. And I felt like it was a failure in the beginning, but what I realized was that all relationships end. They all end at some point. Sometimes it's by choice. Other times it's by circumstance. And I didn't really want to go through the rest of my life not feeling ecstatic about who I got to spend my time with and what we got to do. And so we made a change. And it was really hard in the beginning. And I still remember being curled up in a ball in the back of the courthouse after the judge told me that I lost every point of the trial that I would only get to see my kids 66 days a year. It broke into pieces because I was somebody who saw my kids every day almost, and I was very involved. We had had so much fun in that environment, but it was really limited or compartmentalized to the time where it was just the three of us, me and my two girls. And so I wanted more, and I wanted a relationship where we felt like we could do what we want when we want it without worrying about if somebody was going to be upset because we were laughing too loud or doing something else. And so we created that. And I, I still remember flying out to Wyoming this past summer and going and seeing the buffalo and the hot springs and all of the other things out in Yellowstone and just thinking about how wild and free we were. And that really did something to my soul because it's what I wanted. I felt like the relationship was failure because we didn't do it until circumstance decided that we weren't going to be together being married. And maybe I was a, a loser because I wasn't in the house with my children and I didn't get to tuck them into bed every night and some of the other things. But the relationship between a parent, specifically a dad, and the kids and the relationship with the person that they conceive the kids with are separate relationships. And you can still be very present, interested, and active, even if you don't live in the same household. And that was something that I had to reconcile because through the trial, it was made very clear that I was not a great person and I questioned everything about myself while we were going through it because the person who was presented by opposing counsel was not the person who I was. And, you know, in hindsight, I had to go through that in order to sit where I sit today and be able to help people in the way that I can help them. But when I was going through it, I wanted anything but that. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry for the pain, and uh, but as you note, it's uh, 
that's where the learning is and the growth and what a great place you're in and what a great human you are. Um, talk to talk to us about your relationship with your girls. Oh, it's so much fun. I, I look forward to it. Tomorrow I pick them up. And so I drive right now. I drive three hours to pick them up from where they spend the majority of their time. And I turn right back around and drive three hours back unless we go to my parents' house, which ends up being a four-hour drive. And I greet them with Chick-fil-A because that's their favorite restaurant. I'm not sure why they like that restaurant so much, but they love it. And we eat in the car and we talk about whatever we hadn't talked about through the week. And uh, I really like cars that go fast. And so some weekends we'll go out and look at cars. Other weekends we'll spend time playing cards or board games and sometimes we just lay around and we watch some of their favorite shows on Nickelodeon and I just let them be I want them to feel comfortable asking whatever questions they have to ask and exploring the things that they want to explore and I don't hover over them I, I give them the freedom to roam but know that I'm there watching in case something happens. And it's it's been really fun to see how far that expands. You know, when they were one or two, they may go 10 or 15 or 20 feet away. And now sometimes they'll pull their bike out and they'll go riding through the neighborhood and I'll see them in 10 or 15 minutes or maybe even longer, depending on where they decided to go explore that day. And for me, I, I'm totally comfortable with that. It makes me think about when I was growing up where, you know, nine o'clock, eight, nine o'clock, I hit the door and I'm gone until uh, the sun gets ready to go down because I had to be in before the streetlights come on. I don't know if that was the same rule for you, Molly, but if I got home after the streetlight came on, my mother was standing at the door and she was mad. And so... Yeah, the flexibility and freedom to be able to explore and enjoy the life is what I want to create for my daughters. And my measure of success in that relationship is, do they want to hug me? And <laughs> as they get older and they leave, my next benchmark is going to be when they're 30, do they want me around? They both have expressed interest in having children. So do they want me present in their child's life? And will they want to go for a walk with me and hold hands and talk? And if I've lived a life that serves them in a meaningful way and sets a great example for them, then I think I'll be able to accomplish those things. In my morning affirmation, I say that my children know who I truly am and they adore my essence. And so I try to live in a way where that can be true. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, so let's do a quick segue. Your work is really cool. Um, and I know folks can find out more about it from your site, but you know, just share a bit about how you are having impact with people and, you know, kind of what the, uh, the current Jerome program professionally is. Yeah, so you mentioned the model for centered life in the bio, and we call that the red pill. And it's got six layers. It starts with self-image, relationship, and work. 
those three are where all the stress in your life come from. So what we found is that most people live a life where they feel like they have to take the edge off at the end of the day. And taking the edge off typically means doing something that's self-destructive. And so what we do is we work to help people reduce or compress that stress so that they don't need to take the edge off. And when you don't need to take the edge off, then you can move to level four, which is health. Right? If you're not doing things that negatively impact you, then it makes sense to try to take things to the next level. So we help people come up with their routines to implement meditation and journaling and self-development. Then from level four, we go to level five, which is prosperity. And we do prosperity after health because we want people to continue to elevate. What I've found is most people know somebody who has a tremendous amount of prosperity. and They're spending all of that trying to get their health back. So I'd rather not see people go backwards. I'd rather see them get their health in order than work on the prosperity. And prosperity isn't just money. It's time, talent, and treasures. So are you making money? Are you able to use, your, use and deploy your talent in a meaningful way outside of the activities that you do to earn money? And so those five, once you get through those five, and whatever your measure of success is within those five, I don't tell you what it's supposed to be. You decide what you want out of it then I will say that you've self-actualized. Once you've self-actualized, most people think that they're done. They've reached a pinnacle. But we believe that there's one level that's greater than that. and It's called significance or transcendence. So when you make that play, that significance play, we believe that you are able to drop a pebble into a pond and create a ripple effect. That ripple effect is immortality because you become a part of so many other people, which allows you and your work to live on. Some people will classify this or quantify this as legacy. Whatever word you want to use, the only real success that exists is significance. So we help people walk through those six layers, self-image, relationship, and work, health, prosperity, and significance. love it i love it this is the show right it's helping people be who they are and um in in this journey of getting to know ourselves is a lifelong one and uh, with people like you i think people can have the courage perhaps to go to places that they know they want to go but uh, need a little help getting there that's a real uh gift that you're helping people with What's it mean to you, Jerome, to see people um, make this kind of progress? It's the whole reason that I exist, Molly. So here's the thing. I hate suffering. And ever since a child, I've been doing, trying to do everything I could to eliminate it. And so when people are doing less than what they can do, then they are suffering. They have this voice in their head, they have this tug in their heart, the saying, you gotta do more, you gotta be more. And they're trying to balance that against the world, which is saying, hey, it's okay, be practical. But being practical is the fastest way to be mediocre. And nobody that I know is thriving when they're living a mediocre life. And so my thesis on life is your dream should be real. And for the folks who made it this deep in the show, they are now responsible for that. 
them not doing the things that are speaking to them or pulling at them is sabotage. They're sabotaging somebody else because somebody else is relying on them to do their thing so that they can do their thing. I love how you're empowering people. Okay, we could talk forever. We're going to wrap it up. Um, Three words or phrases that you think capture the essence of you. Three words, authentic, genuine, loving. I love it. And uh, all I can say is I'm cheering for you. I uh, appreciate, Jerome, how you're helping others make better lives for themselves, their families, communities. Uh, I'm here to help you any way I can. I want to thank you for being part of the solution and helping all to be safe, seen, and heard, and our true and very best selves. You take good care, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. This has been amazing. Many more conversations to come. Okay, folks, my thought for the week in honor of the late Thich Nhat Hanh, waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to look at all beings with eyes of compassion. And that is a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Jerome's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in your life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.